Okay, uh, this is my pleasure to interview one of my favorite musicians and a good friend, uh, all in the same nice package. And um, so, Roger, I'm going to just ask you some questions, and we're going to sit back and let you tell us a bunch of tales. Lies, okay, cool. Yeah. I Lies. had to make notes because I can't remember much. You reach a certain age, and <laughs> things just go away. So. Some of them should go away. <laughs> Don't bring those up. <laughs> I heard a, a wonderful quote recently that has nothing to do with anything except remembering and forgetting, but I thought it was worth keeping. It said, um, most people write down what they need to remember. Songwriters write down what they would love to forget. Isn't that great? Anyway, so I'm going <laughs> to... That was your first instrument, right? The right. Xylophone, you know, right. in the third grade. All right, we're going to start with um, Little Roger Spencer. <laughs> and I hear that you started out on keyboards, right. and then you morphed to the saxophone, and then somehow you wound up with the bass fiddle. So give us a little pricey on that. Well, as a family act in vaudeville, starting in 19... No. Uh, Born in 52, despite my youthful appearance. Mere child, mere child. And by the time I was four or five years old, mm -hmm. I was playing the family piano by ear. So you know, dad says, hey, the kid's got talent. <laughs> Get him some lessons. And he'd always wanted an excuse to buy a Hammond B3 organ. So <laughs> I was his got. excuse to buy the Hammond organ. So they started teaching me, uh, getting me organ lessons. So I was playing keyboards. I never learned to read music then because I always weaseled the teacher into playing next week's lesson for me once before I'd leave the studio. That's right. We all did that. Yeah. And uh, that evolved into playing keyboards in rock and roll bands in like uh, junior high school. We could never find a decent bass player. So I had to take the bass home, the electric bass, and learn the bass parts and take it back to the, the rehearsal the next week and try to teach the guy with the bass to play the bass parts. And bass, bass players for that kind of thing were usually frustrated guitar players. They couldn't handle playing more than one string at a time. But the more I played that electric bass, the more I said, I like this. I like the function of the bass. Uh, everybody like gravitates, no pun intended, to the instrument that is like their personality. And the, the bass across the styles is like the fundament of the rhythm and the harmony. So it's the bass player's job to put the bottom in everything and tie everybody together. That's right. And so you the more the bass I played, the more I liked it. And uh, along the way, I picked up, you know, school band. I played clarinet, elementary school. Junior high school picked up uh, bass clarinet and baritone sax so I could play in the stage band. Okay. And then more bass. Finally ended up playing bass in that. So when you went to college, you um, majored in saxophone, but you had already started playing bass. Right. I was an electric bass player primarily. I played a lot of R&B and funk. All my friends were playing Cream, and I was listening to James Brown and Motown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't get the rock and the metal and the the loud three-chord stuff. I liked things with great groove. I was all about groove. Even my jazz playing is all about the swing, the quarter note, the groove. That, that's why I asked Duffy to play with me today. He's a master of that. Um, where was I going with that? 
Oh, the saxophone. saxophone. Yeah. I had been playing the saxophone in the R&B bands. One of the things about the R&B bands from the 60s, part of the show was everybody doubled. In that band, I played keyboards, electric bass. I think I even played one tune on guitar. But I primarily played uh, alto sax, flute, and baritone sax. <laughs> and everybody in the band played different things. We had a three-horn section. We had a couple guys out front. We did a whole Motown review. We did a whole, like, the second side of James Brown at the Apollo Live. Wow. Did that whole album side in, in order. And when I got to uh, ready to go to school, I was supposed to be a chemical engineer. My dad wanted me to go to engineering school and play music on the side. So I visited the engineering school, and I didn't like anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, before we uh, pull the trigger on this, how about we visit the school at Indiana University? So we drove down there, and I walked in that music business building, and I was home. I just, people practicing, it just smelled like music. Everybody was having a great time, and uh, so I just reversed the roles. Instead of being a chemical engineer and playing music on the side, I played music and did a little chemical engineering on the side. What? No. <laughs> was that personal chemicals? Yeah, never, never mind. <laughs> so, uh, to, being an electric bass player, I could not major in electric bass at Indiana University. So... You know, I talked with Dave Baker, the professor there, who's still there. Yes, he is. Uh, and he said, well, you play saxophone from the school band, right? He went to Dr. Eugene Rousseau, who was the classical saxophone teacher there, and explained the situation. And Dr. Rousseau was kind enough to let me skate through as a technicality, as a saxophone major. And I started studying string bass at that point. And the bass teacher was a teaching assistant at the time, Robert Goodlett, who's now the principal bassist with the Indianapolis Symphony. So I started practicing the bass and got better at the bass and played more bass and less saxophone. As soon as I got out of college, I sold the saxophone. I had asked him earlier if he still had any of his saxophones or clarinets, and he said no. And I said, is that because you just haven't gotten one, or is it because you don't want to see them anymore? Well, I did have one for a while, not too long ago. I thought ago. you had a, an alto or something. Yeah. yeah. I kind of started missing it, especially when I hear Art Pepper and Paul Desmond. I go, yeah, I, hmm. could, I could make that sound. So I bought a horn and played it for a while. I just don't have time. And then we had a student come through the workshop who really, really needed a better horn, so I sold it to him. Good, good. Well, we really always need better bass players, so I'm glad you stayed where you were. <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. playing bass. Percy Heath said uh, something to my husband, who was also a bass player and guitar player, um, when uh, we went to a concert at Vanderbilt and Percy was playing and my husband went backstage and met him and um, he, said, he said, I really love your bass playing. And he said, do you play? And Billy said, yes. And, and he said, here, play my bass. And uh, Billy was like, oh my God, you know, and he played it just played some little runs and some things like that and something about his posture and everything. And Percy said, why are you playing guitar? And he said, because I started out with guitar and I'm primarily a guitar player. And he said, you're a bass player. You even hold it naturally. And I always think of that when I think of the way you play because 
it seems like the bass chooses the bass player rather than the other way around. I don't know if every instrument's like that or not, but I think all instruments are like that, and and it's obvious when it works. It's, yeah, it's just not so obvious when it doesn't. One of the things I I really press my students about is if you're going to play bass, play bass. Mm -hmm. Like I was talking about that role of the bass being the fundament of the rhythm and the harmonic structure. Mm -hmm. We don't need lead guitar players holding a bass. That's not going to help the ensemble. When it comes time for your solo, great, go for it. But play the bass first. And there's a whole lot of guys out there that can't play bass, but they're bass players. I don't know if that's too esoteric, but job one is to it's put true. the bottom in that groove. Keep, keep the rhythm going. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it drives piano players crazy, I'll say, from a personal standpoint. Uh, if you get a bass player that's up, way, up high on, or way up high on the neck, high in sound, uh, when you're trying to solo or play up in the middle register of the mm -hmm. piano, because you want that thing in the bottom and you're not getting it because you're getting basically a guy that's trying to solo along with you mm -hmm. kind of thing. And even though that person may be very technically and musically uh, good, it's the wrong style or the wrong thing to do. It's choice of notes and stuff. Yeah, we yeah. had Victor Wooten at the workshop. We've, we've had him there several times, but I remember one time he came in and did like a, a two-hour class. I had a whole series of the great Nashville bass players come in, and he was one of them. And the first thing he did was he played a 20-minute solo. And it was just amazing. Just he, everything he put into it. He, he just played everything you could imagine he could do, and then some. And... He did that on purpose because his next question is, okay, any questions about what I just did? Of course, I'll, yeah, how'd you do this thing? How'd you do this? He says, I'll show you, but don't. <laughs> says, I get paid a lot of money to do this with Bela Fleck. But if you go on your gigs and do this, you will be fired. <laughs> that's, He's that's, right. Yeah. yeah very it does, you, you can't uh, call Stardust and then have somebody start playing like Jaco Pastorius, mm -hmm. on a ballad when there's a whole group of people at the bar mitzvah that want to mm -hmm. have a foxtrot. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and at some point in your life, even if you're a jazz musician, you're going to have to play commercially to get where you're going to get. Uh, everybody has to play those gigs to kind of go through them. It's like the working college, being on a bandstand in a country club. And if you start showing everything you can do the band leader's going to hire somebody else because you're not making it swing in that genre. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's something that everybody, if they're smart, they learn it right away. There are a few exceptions. Yeah. Uh, you think of the Bill Evans trio with Scott LaFaro, but that concept was simultaneous improvisation. Yes. But they knew exactly where the time was, they knew exactly where the harmonic structure was, and they, they were able to move in and out of that like nobody else could do, but still keep, you know, the composition framework intact. Uh, or some highly orchestrated uh, groups like Oscar Peterson Trio. Oh, yeah. The stuff they worked out with Herb Ellis. We were listening to that Thursday night. Amazing stuff. Technical stuff, but it was orchestrated and intentional. It wasn't just somebody over there jamming while you're trying to play your solo. Yeah, yeah. It has to be planned. Um, speaking of bass players, let's talk about Ray Brown for a minute and how you discovered him and what it did for you. Uh, I was playing the electric bass. <clears throat> 
in the R&B bands, and my brother-in-law at the time gave me a vinyl copy of Oscar Peterson Trio Plus One with Clark Terry, and he said, you want to hear a bass player? Here's a bass player. And I'd never heard anything like that in my life. It just, like, flipped my brain inside out. And I, I so imprinted on that sound that with a vinyl record player, I actually sat down and memorized every bass line on that record, note for note, every tune, and would play exactly Ray Brown's lines. And students now, when they ask, I want to learn to walk bass lines, you know, I get country players and bluegrass players, and they want to learn to walk jazz bass lines. And the most confusing questions I get is, what book should I get? None. <laughs> no well, book. I never had no book. <laughs> I said two words, Ray Brown, he's the master, he's the, he is the Bible of walking bass lines because he has perfect time, tone, intonation, he plays the job, which is the harmonic fundament and the rhythmic, and then he has that last most esoteric part of bass playing, he does it in a way that is always melodic and interesting. He leads the chord changes from one to the next in such a way that the soloist doesn't have, have to know the song. I've had saxophone players tell me that. If you know the song, I don't have to. You can hand me the chord changes by playing the bass line. And there it is. Yep. So that's what I started getting from Ray Brown. Well, so you, you got a lot because I, it, to me, uh, as a pianist who is always looking for bass players to do certain things, um, you are right in the pocket with people like Bob Cranshaw and Ray Brown and George DeVivier and those, the older guys uh, in that it's straight through the middle. There's no fluff for doodle or whatever around. It's just ba-dong, dong, dong, dong. And it's, it's what a friend of mine, a guitar player, said about another bass player that I knew. He said, this guy has such a good groove that when he's on the bandstand, he picks up the people by the nose and takes them down the... Down the pike with the right tempo. He just, oh. come on, follow I saw, me. I saw Ray else. Brown do that a yeah. lot. <laughs> Ray would take over a tempo. I remember one night being in a club in L.A. called Carmelo's. And on the stage, I think it was Ross Tompkins. Ooh. I think the drummer was Nick Ciroli, Mundell Lowe, Jack Sheldon, and uh, Marshall Royal with Ray not on bass. Yeah. And Mundell Lowe, brilliant guitarist played like this uh, solo uh, rubato version of a ballad one time through. And then he wanted to bring the whole band in. And he played the turnaround in tempo. And his tempo was like, ching, 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 ching. And as he's doing that, I see Ray Brown lean out and peer across the bandstand at him, like one of those looks. And he goes, <laughs> doom, 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 doom. Don't, you know, here's where the tempo's going to be. <laughs> Charles Dungey used to do that. Yeah. He, I, I remember having a conversation with Dale Armstrong. <laughs> After we had played a set, we were sitting at the bar, and I said, don't you love playing with Charles? And he said, yeah, I do. And he said, he really, he takes over the tempo, but it's always the right one. And he said, that on that last tune we played, you know, I started out doing something, and Charles was like, ba-dong, dong, dong, you know. And, and Dale said to the air around Charles. Oh, that's where it is. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, and then he kept going. Yeah. But, um, and it, you know, you have to get used to those things, but when you do, when you know that person's gonna do that, 
and you become um, familiar with their playing and play with them more. It's wonderful because you don't have to think so hard and everything feels really good. So you really are the, the captain of the ship at that point. So, yeah, that's Hear good. That? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we haven't gotten into piano players yet. I'm on her side for two reasons, piano and feminism. There you go. Um, so let's get to uh, a tune. Why don't you play Slippery by Ray It's a Ray Brown composition called Slippery. Yeah. I guess I should go over there now. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> 